about three or four years after I became a Christian, one of my best friends growing up became a Christian. And we were hanging out, and I remember asking him, so do, do you have any questions about the Christian life? And he said, yes. I've been wanting to ask someone this for a long time. And I said, great. What's your question? And he said, you know, I, th- there are many things I understand about, you know, corporate worship when we come, but, but I don't understand why people raise their hands when they sing. I kind of started smiling and laughing. And he then went on to say, like, do, do Christians think that like music is absorbed in their hands or something? He wondered if it was like a sacrament. And so I said, well, if I remember correctly, I said, you know, he's a big Sounders fan. And I said, well, what happens when you're at a Sounders game and they score a goal? What does the crowd do? They raise their hand, right? It's almost involuntary, right? A sign of your, your, of how thrilled you are, a sign of your excitement, a sign of, in one sense, your devotion to your team is that you raise up your hands in excitement. It's just like involuntary, right? You've been to the, those games where there's like a buzzer beater. You can't help it. You just throw up your hands. Well, that's sort of what people do when they raise their hand in worship. It's a, it's a sign of their praise, their, their excitement. They're, they're thrilled. They're saying that I'm treasuring God more than anything in my life. And yet, if you think about it, it's not just my friend who has questions about worship, is it? I mean, we all have questions. I, I could think of sort of my sort of story and the various kind of worship traditions that I've been a part of. And so I was raised Catholic, like high church with all the bells and smells. And then I got saved in the charismatic church, very, very free in their worship. Then for a season, I went to a historically black church. Again, a a different worship experience. Then I went to a non-denominational church. Then I went to a Baptist church, and for the first time I saw an altar call, and I had lots of questions about that, right? We all have questions, regardless of your kind of tradition that you grew up with. When, When you step back and think about it, sometimes we're like, why do we do that? Why is this a part of corporate worship? Why do we do the sorts of things we do when we gather on a Sunday? Well, the psalm today, it's all about worship. So if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, some of your questions might be answered today as it relates to worship. Not all of them, but some of them. This is a psalm all about worship. So we're going to meditate on worship various aspects of Christian worship. Now, once again, we are going through this series in the book of Psalms, and we're not going through all of it. We're not going, you know, starting in verse uh, Psalm 1 and going all the way to the end of the book of Psalms. We're we're looking at a collection of Psalms from from 120 to 134. And this is a Psalm collection of that's collected together because of the superscription there. These are songs of ascent. Meaning these were songs that pilgrims sang as they made their way up to Jerusalem for various feasts throughout the year. It's why we've called and titled this series Pilgrim Songs. 
So you might hear me as I talk about the author, and I might call him a pilgrim. That's, that's who he is. That's what we all are. We are pilgrims. We are spiritual pilgrims on a journey, maybe not to Jerusalem, but we're definitely on a journey to New Jerusalem. And so this week we look at a psalm. Last week we looked at a psalm of trust. The week before it was more of a song of repentance, a song of lament. And now we get to a psalm all about worship. The big idea is simply this, and it'll be kind of broken down in three parts. We're going to look at a call to worship, the duty of worship, and a blessing of worship. So worship is a call, a duty, and a blessing. We're first going to look at the call to worship that we see in verses 1 and 2, then sort of a, a tour of dutiful worship, and then finally, a blessing that we find as it relates to worship. So let, let's go to verse 1. Let me read it once again. By, by, by the end, we'll reread this entire psalm. Verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Right, the, the pilgrim's been making his way to Jerusalem, and it, and it seems as though he's arrived. His feet are within her gates. And you can see the emotion of this pilgrim. He's glad. Gladness. He's glad that he's about to go into the house of the Lord. Now we have these feelings, right? We've experienced these feelings. I remember as a kid, the first time we went to Disneyland, right? I'd seen pictures of Disneyland. I'd heard about the Disneyland gossip. But you kind of can't prepare for it as a kid. When you finally walk in that huge line, and then you finally walk in and you just survey the scene with all the smells and the costumes and the rides, it's overwhelming. It just fills you with gladness, right? I'm pretty sure Disneyland is the only place in the world that has banished sadness from its property, right? It's self-prescribed the happiest place on earth. Well, this pilgrims, he's somewhere far happier than that. He's in the house of the Lord, isn't he? He's somewhere far better than Disneyland. And he's experiencing emotions far better than those that you might experience in Disneyland. He's glad. And so he hears like some other pilgrims, some other saints, some other people, you know, cry out, it's time. It's finally time we're going to go to the house of the Lord. He hears a, a call to worship. And it's that call to worship that then produces so much gladness in his heart. Now, worship, it's not unique to Christians. Worship isn't unique just to religious people. Everyone worships. Worship is part of being made in the image of God. We all worship. Worship means uh, attributing weight or worthiness to something or someone. And so we were created to worship. We were created to, to say that we treasure God amongst 
all other things. That is our greatest treasure. And so we were called in the beginning to worship. You know, you've heard of the word homo sapien, which if you break it down, it means, you know, wise man. Well, that, that's sort of true. But, but really, we're homo auditorio. We're worshiping man. Not necessarily just wise man. We are worshiping man, worshiping women. We are called to worship. And yet, since the fall, since Genesis 3... We worship lots of substitutes, don't we? We worship lesser gods, false gods, substitute gods, small gods with a lowercase g. There are lots of things in our lives that we say, either functionally or with our words, we say, oh, that, that, that's sort of our functional god or our functional savior. Then we, we worship those. And yet this psalm is a reminder where our worship should be going to. Our worship is to the Lord. Look at the gladness that he has. This pilgrim is experiencing so much gladness because he's with God's people, worshiping God. Just, just notice that. It's not just him, is it? It says, let us go to the house of the Lord. So there's this call that goes out which if you think about it, I don't make a call to worship. Phil doesn't make a call to worship. No person can call people into worship. Only God can do it. It's why we read God's word as a call to worship. God calls people into worship. He must initiate. And so every call to worship is an act of grace. As a result of our sin, as a result of us worshiping other gods, false gods, substitute gods, God could just say, fine, I'm going to be silent. I'm going to stop calling you into worship. But that's not what he does. He once again calls God people into worship and they do it communally. Right? This is not just the worship of an individual pilgrim. It says, let us go together. This is, this is what we might call public worship or corporate worship or communal worship. I mean, we're supposed to worship God in all of our lives, right? From Monday to Sunday, in our work, in our homes. We're supposed to worship God in all things that we do. But, but here, the, vo- the, 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 kind of the, the, the thing that he's looking at, the, the thing that we're seeing in the psalm, it isn't individual worship, it's, it's corporate worship. It's people coming together in Jerusalem to worship God. Now, we don't need to travel all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship God, do we? We don't need to travel to Jerusalem to be with God's people and worship God. So, I mean, as New Covenant believers, how does this translate into our lives? Well, going to Jerusalem is a little bit like going to church on Sunday. Derek Kidner, in his wonderful commentary of the Old Testament, writes this. What Jerusalem is to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. And so this pilgrim, like us this morning, hears a call of grace, a a call to come and worship, and he heeds it. And he's glad. He's excited. He's like, God, I treasure you amongst all things. 
God is the weightiest thing in this pilgrim's life, and he's with the, the sort of the saints there in Jerusalem. He, he comes together in worship of God. Not because it's convenient, right? Traveling to Jerusalem is not convenient. And I've got little kids traveling to church on Sunday is not convenient always, is it? It's much easier to just, you know, stream someone online. No, it's not about convenience that calls us into worship. It's something particular that happens. In the pilgrim's day, the, the house of the Lord was literally where God lived, right? If you go back up to verse 1 and look at the superscription, it says, A song of a sense of David. David, King David wrote this psalm. And so in David's time, the house of the Lord was the tabernacle. And then his son Solomon built God a house, a temple. God dwelt there in Jerusalem. God had a house, like a, a literal house. When, when, when Solomon built this temple, God's glory filled it. Our temple? Our temple is Christ. And wherever Christians dwell, it's, you know, the, the church that she gathers, it's not a location, it's a people. You could have an address or not. You could be inside or outside. But wherever God's people gather, wherever the gospel is preached, there you've got the gathering of the church. As Jesus himself would say, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And so here we see in Psalm 122 that the pilgrims are gathered together and they're making their, their worship visible. And that's what we do when we gather on Sunday. What Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to us. And we just see the, the emotion of the pilgrim, right? He is glad He's finally there. He's a, it's like he's pinching himself, like, I'm finally in the house of the Lord with God's people worshiping God. He's pinching himself. He's that excited that he's there. He's glad. Now, just for a moment, think about an Old Testament saint. Think about all of the things that God has done, all the sort of revelation and the promises that God has done. He, he's brought them out of Egypt, right? He, he's given them a land. All these sorts of things have been wonderful. This pilgrim has a lot to praise God, a lot to thank God for. But the New Testament is clear that we, as New Covenant believers, have way more to be thankful for, have way more to be glad about, because we know more. In the Old Testament, you know, the, the Messiah was a, a type and a, and, and, and a shadow. It was a, a promise yet to be fulfilled. But we live and we've experienced the fulfillment of that promise. They knew the Messiah would come. We know the Messiah's name. We know what the Messiah has done. We, know, we have the Messiah's words. So if this pilgrim has much to be glad about, Oh, we have so much more to be glad about. We know that in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. We, we know that he lived a perfect life and he died and rose again and ascended. We have someone sitting at the right hand of God, the Father, interceding for us right now. Think of all of the promises that we have. 
all the things that we know, oh, it just trumps what the old covenant saint knew. And so I wonder if, let's say, this pilgrim transported to your house on Sunday morning, got in your car as you were traveling to church on Sunday, and then showed up at church, would he say, oh, this is what I've been looking for all my life. I'm pinching myself. Would he experience that sort of gladness? Could he say, oh, I was glad then, but now, as we sing these songs, I am far more glad. Have you ever noticed that? That that as you're singing a song of worship, and and you're singing, like, wonderful things about God creating the universe, and you're like, yes, that's wonderful. But, But then you get to Christ and him dying for you. You know, it's one, one thing to, to praise God and, and it's glorious that he made the heavens, but then he humbled himself and came to earth. Doesn't that well up a different kind of gladness in your heart? To know that God not only is creator, but he is the, the creator who then humbled himself and died for us and did so at such a great cost. I mean, we just sang that song, All Praise to Him, Right? And and that first verse is all praise to him, the God of light who formed the mountains by his might. All praise to him who names the stars that sing his fame in skies above, afar. All praise to him who reigns in love, who guides the galaxies above, yet bends to hear our every prayer with sovereign power and tender care. That pilgrim could have literally sung that song. He knew all that thing. It's verse two that would have been shocking. All praise to him whose love is seen in Christ the Son, the servant king, who left behind the glorious throne to pay the ransom for his own. All praise to him who humbly came to bear our sorrow, sin, and shame, who lived to die, who died to rise, the all-sufficient sacrifice. This pilgrim has gladness as he gathers with the saints and he worships God at Jerusalem, Oh, we have so much more to be glad about. We know so much more. There is a, a, a progression. You know, there is a revealing of revelation. Is our worship filled with gladness? Well, that's what we see first in this pilgrim. We see a, a gladness that there's this call to worship, this call of grace. And if you know anything about grace... And I'm watching and looking out at people who've experienced God's grace. You know that people who've experienced grace, tasted grace, experience gladness. And that's what we see with this pilgrim. God's call of grace goes out and it wells up gladness in his heart. But, but second, let's sort of take a tour of worship. And, and we'll find out that it's not just that so, sort of God says, yeah, come and worship. It's actually a command. It's a decree. Let me, let me read, starting in verse 3. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The thrones of judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. We'll stop there. Jerusalem there in verse 3 is described as a city that's like bound together. 
right? Like architecturally, it's, it's like diverse, there's different buildings, there's different areas of Jerusalem, but altogether it's like bound up. And so what the author is saying is, as Jerusalem, this is an analogy, as Jerusalem is bound up, so Israel is bound up in their worship of God, right? You, you, you've got there, verse 4, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. I mean, sort of being American, it can be frustrating enough that there's two parties in our kind of political system. But think about Israel. There's 12 tribes. 12 sort of political parties. Bad enough to have two. They've got 12, right? They, 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 we don't think about it. We think of Israel just like one nation, one ethnicity, one... Yes, that's true, but different tribes. And if you read the book of Judges, you see that different tribes spoke a little bit different. They looked a little bit different. They had various kind of uh, preferences. And yet as Jerusalem is bound up, so Israel and their 12 tribes are bound up in their worship of God. All 12 tribes, didn't matter if it was the farthest to the north or the south of Jerusalem, didn't matter how far away you were, didn't matter if you were from the smallest tribe or the biggest tribe, you were all called up to Jerusalem to worship. That was what bound them together. It was their worship. It wasn't what tribe they were in. It was that all of them were called by God to come up to Jerusalem to worship God. That was what unified them. You could almost summarize verse 3 and 5 this way. And, and, and if you see in verse 5, there's this reference to the house of David. That's the kingdom, right? So you could summarize verses 3 and 5 this way, that God's people were bound together. God's people are unified because they live in the kingdom and worship the king. Now, sometimes I think we think of the Old Testament and say, oh, their worship was so different than ours, which is true in some sense. But all of us could say that, right? That our unity is that we worship God and that we live in God's kingdom. That's where our unity comes from. It comes because of who we worship and the kingdom that we live in and the king that we submit to. This past weekend was uh, MLK weekend. And on Monday, my family kind of gathered around, and we were, were homeschooling. And, and so uh, my wife got some, um, it was like a, a book kind of documentary about kind of the civil rights. And we watched it, and we talked about it as a family. And I, and I couldn't help, as we were kind of discussing it and, and talking about it as a family, I, I couldn't help but think of another civil rights activist in uh, kind of the middle part of the 20th century, a man by the name of... John Perkins. Now, John Perkins was a man who, who, who was fighting for, fighting against uh, segregation in the South, and one day he was illegally detained, and he was beaten in Mississippi. And his autobiography details this. And he details that his, he, he literally had a heart attack as a result of the trauma from those beatings, and he was kind of going through the emotions. He had rage, he had anger, he had frustration. He had very human reaction to this trauma, this tragedy. And yet, after those kind of emotions welled up, he sort of suppressed those emotions and found 
supernatural response. We read of this in his autobiography. And he says, While I lay on the floor of the Simpson County Jail in Mississippi, I made a decision. My decision was to preach a gospel stronger than my racial identity and bigger than the segregation around me. At that moment, he decided to preach a gospel bigger than what was going on around him. That's a big gospel, isn't it? That's a gospel that unites. That's a gospel that that brings people together that the world would say, no, those people can't come together. That's impossible. I was reminded of it this uh, a couple weeks ago because I was Skyping with uh, some friends of ours who are missionaries in the Middle East. And they were showing picture after picture um, of various things that are going on. And they showed two pictures of two men getting baptized. And they said, this man who got baptized is from India. And the guy who got baptized right after is from Pakistan. And he paused for a second, and I knew exactly what he was going to say. He goes, do you know anything about India and Pakistan? They were groomed from birth to hate each other. And they're really good friends. And they got baptized on the same day. And how is that possible? A man from India, a man from Pakistan, all their life told that the other people were out to get them, that, that they, you could not have friendship with them. It'd be to, to throw away your, your national identity. A bigger gospel was preached to those men. And that's what was uniting. That's what united them. Jerusalem was, was bound up. It was, a, a, you know, architecturally fit together just like the church ought to be bound together. Not because we like the same teams or the same preferences or we all make the same money or we all have the same education or, or whatever. That's not what binds us. It's not affinity. It's that we all live in the kingdom of God and we worship the king. That's where unity comes from. You see, all throughout this psalm, do, do you notice the, 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 the pilgrim, the, the, the author? You just sense that he loves God's people, right? Do you, do you see that? He, he's concerned for Jerusalem. He's concerned for his brothers, verse 8. He wants peace. He, he even prays for peace, and he calls for a prayer for peace in Jerusalem, verse 6. I mean, you can't read this and not sense that this pilgrim loves God's people. He wants them to prosper. He wants peace. He wants their enjoyment. He wants their gladness. He wants them to thrive. He doesn't want peace at any price. Now this pilgrim wants peace at the ultimate price. You you can have peace for any price, I suppose. but, But that's not what this pilgrim wants. He doesn't want peace at any price. He wants peace at the ultimate price. And the ultimate price is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he prays. He prays for safety. He prays for peace. He prays for his brothers, his companions. He he prays for their well-being, that they would prosper. I think this ought to be our prayer too. 
If you love God's people, you will pray for God's people. If you love the church, you're going to pray for the church. If you love the people of the church, you're going to pray for the prosperity of those within the church. And so he prays for Jerusalem. And then lastly, I just want to point out a blessing. We see this in verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they, secure, may they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The psalm, if you've noticed, is broken up by the word Jerusalem. Do you guys notice that? Right? I broke it down in verse 1 and 2, verse 3 through 5, and 6 through 9. And you see Jerusalem at the end, verse 2. Jerusalem at the beginning, verse 3. Jerusalem at the beginning, verse 6. Jerusalem kind of structures the psalm. Why is this pilgrim concerned about Jerusalem? Ever thought of that? Why does he care about Jerusalem? Well, let's just think like an Old Testament saint for a second. Why? Why in the Old Testament was Jerusalem so important? Well, one, Jerusalem was where the king reigned. David. Okay? See reference to that in verse 5. Jerusalem was also where the priests ministered. Right? So, so you could think of it this way. In Jerusalem, you had the White House and you had the church. Jerusalem was where God literally resided on earth. Jerusalem was the focal point of the world. So if you wanted to make peace with God, you had to go to Jerusalem. You just couldn't go to Shechem and, you know, sacrifice. The men are going through first kings. And actually, the, the northern kingdom, when it, when it was split, one of the things, that the, what the king does, first and foremost, is he set up alternative ways to sacrifice. Because he doesn't want them to go to Jerusalem. It's a way to kind of fortify his power. And he's judged for it. No, no, no. Jerusalem is important because that's the only place you can sacrifice to God. It's the center of the universe. It's the focal point of their worship. It's where God's people met God. It's where you brought your sacrifices, your lambs, your, 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 your offerings. It's where you remembered God and worshipped God and celebrated God, enjoyed God, all in Jerusalem. It's no wonder that he prays for peace in Jerusalem. Now, I think it's good to pray for Jerusalem. You know, pray for peace in the Middle East. But notice three times in verses 6 through 9, it says, within. May peace be within your walls and security within your towers. I will say, peace be within you. I think what's going on here, it's not just, oh, I need to pray for peace for Jerusalem. It's, if Jerusalem is unsafe, my worship and my relationship to God is unsafe. That's how important Jerusalem is in the Old Testament. So by praying for peace in Jerusalem, they were praying for their own spiritual vitality. 
And when this kind of threefold kind of idea of within, 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 I think what the, what the psalmist is really saying, what the pilgrim is really saying is, let's pray for peace that's only found within Jerusalem. Let's pray for the peace found in Jerusalem. You, you all know, I bet, the story of Abraham. When he takes his son Isaac up a mountain and God calls him to sacrifice the son of promise. And as he's making his way up, Abraham and his son have a conversation. And his son goes, Dad, I, I see you've got the wood, you've got the knife. Where's the sacrifice? Remember, remember Abraham's response? Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb. They get up to the mountain. Right before Abraham is going to sacrifice the, the son of promise, God provides a sacrifice. But it's not a lamb, is it? You ever notice Abraham gets it wrong? It's a ram. Stuck in some thorns. Why wasn't it a lamb? It's because it wasn't time for the lamb to be sacrificed. That would come many, 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 many years later. Isaiah would talk about this. He would talk about the Messiah to come as a lamb led like a sheep to the slaughter. A lamb without blemish. And that lamb did come. Where? Well, that lamb was sacrificed in Jerusalem, no less. It was God's own son who would display God's love as he died as a sacrifice, as a peace offering for God's own people. So, so, so pray for Jerusalem. But pray for Jerusalem because that's where peace is found. It was found temporarily with all of the sacrifices made and it was found climactically and finally and ultimately in Jesus' own death on a cross and as he rose to life again. Pilgrims in the Old Testament went to Jerusalem to find peace with God. They were called to do that, right? They were called to go up. It was a command. We see that in verse 4. To go up and to give thanks to the Lord. We don't go to Jerusalem anymore. But we do find peace in Jerusalem, don't we? Because peace has already been made between us and God through the Lamb, Jesus Christ. This is a psalm all about worship. It's a psalm that ends detailing a prayer, a petition about peace, peace with God, prosperity with God, security with God. All of that can only happen through God's own Son. It can only happen through the gospel. It's all about grace. And I think it ends, it would do us well to end by going back to the beginning. Verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. I was glad. Worship should be filled with gladness. Not, not like trite emotionalism. 
but gladness. Because God calls, because God unites, and because God grants peace and security and spiritual prosperity to all who trust in Jesus Christ. Does gladness summarize, describe your worship individually? We'll do what the pilgrim does. Meditate on grace. Think about all of the ways in which God has touched you. Let me just close quickly with a story. I've been reading a biography of John Newton. And one thing I didn't know is that he almost every day wrote in a journal. And he just detailed the mercies and grace of God in his life that particular day. And after 10 years of doing it, he would finish and write a new book. But right before, he would then open up that book and he'd read it. He'd read every entry to just well up about God's mercy in his life. If you didn't know, that's where the amazing grace comes from. It comes as a response to him reading God's amazing mercies and grace in his own life. He then penned amazing grace when he finished his second book of journal entries. So if you want to worship God with gladness, maybe remember God's past mercies this week. Let's pray. God, we, we know that it's a duty to worship, but we don't want to just worship you out of duty. We want to have delight in our worship and gladness. So let us think well of your, of your son, of the gospel. Let us continually think and pray and meditate on all that you've done in and through our lives Lord, I pray for these men and women that you would richly bless them this week, that you would encourage them, and that you'd remind them of all of the things that you've done in their lives and that they would turn those, those things that you've done in their life that they would well up and it would turn into worship. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to corporately worship. We pray that we would, our corporate worship would be marked with gladness. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.